Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 150 of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I'm happy to have Professor Alfred McCoy on the show. This is a historian whose work I've been a fan of for quite a while, and whose work you may recall I've referenced favorably on the show before. And I have to say, I respect him very much as, in many ways, a prime example of a dangerous historian in terms of the topics he looks into, and in some cases, the actual personal risks he's taken, as you'll hear a little bit about during the interview. And he is, in my mind, one of the most interesting highly credentialed, highly esteemed historians in conventional academia that you can find today. Dr. McCoy holds a PhD from Yale University in Southeast Asian History and currently holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he has taught for many years. He's the author of many books, Many, though not all, of which I've read, but I can say I've enjoyed every one, including The Politics of Heroin, Policing America's Empire, A Question of Torture, and Colonial Crucible, among others. And his latest book, published just a few months ago, is In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power, which kind of ties together a lot of the work he's done on various subtopics of the American empire, and then also brings in the issues of geopolitics and the causes and consequences of America's decline. So it's a very interesting book, definitely worth reading, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. McCoy and appreciate his time in talking to me. As you'll find out in the interview, he's certainly not on the same page as me 100% as far as my across-the-board radical anti-imperialism, but I have to say I appreciate his perspective, and I always will recommend his work as thought-provoking and definitely worth reading. I always learn something every time I read something by him. Also, I want to say that you'll definitely want to check out the show notes for this episode over at profcj.org slash EP150, because in addition to linking to Dr. McCoy's latest book and many of his previous books, I'll also have links in the show notes to a recent interview he did with Scott Horton, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, talking specifically about the subject of Afghanistan's current and recent heroin production and the role of heroin in all the problems going on in that part of the world, as well as to Dr. McCoy's article archive at TomDispatch.com, where he has published many articles. And I'll also link to some of his many lectures that can be found on YouTube on various topics. So I'll link to one extensive lecture just on the Southeast Asian drug trade and another one about the history of psychological terror, basically meaning torture, and uh, it's used by the U.S. government, and then also a much more recent lecture having to do with the latest book talking about the rise and decline of U.S. global power. Before we jump into the conversation, real quick, I have some Patreon thank yous. Big thank yous to Ray and to Chris, two people who've recently signed up to support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. So thank you both very much for doing that. And just as a reminder to all of you that for a pledge of just $5 a month or more, you'll have access to special bonus episodes that are available nowhere else in Patreon. And you will also get regular Dangerous History podcasts early and with any ads or shoutouts or extraneous things um, cut out. You'll also have access to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors Facebook group as well. 
So if you're not already a supporting listener of the Dangerous History Podcast, I hope you'll consider becoming one. Now, without further ado, my interview with Alfred McCoy on his book, In the Shadows of the American Century. I'm uh, speaking to Professor Alfred McCoy today, and he is the author of many books, the most recent of which is In the Shadows of the American Century. And right off the bat, your latest book hooked me with the autobiographical introduction. And some of the story that you cover there, your personal story, um, you also covered in the intro to Politics of, Her- of Heroin. Uh, but in the latest book, you share even more and go back even further. And to me, and I'm sure to many of my listeners, it's a very interesting story, actually. And first off, your youth was kind of tied into the rise of the American world empire in a way. And then secondly, kind of how you got onto the trail of the American empire's heroin connections during the Vietnam era. Um, it's just an incredible story, both in terms of how you pursued that story and the hazards you faced and then what kind of blowback you faced personally. So, would you mind telling us kind of some of the, the cliff notes of the intro to this book? Sure. Let's just pick up on the on the part that's most relevant to what we're going to be talking about, U.S. global power. Uh, when I was 26 years old, a graduate student at uh, Yale University in the history program, I'd been in school for almost all of my life from the time I was six years old. I hadn't really been out in the world. Uh, the Vietnam War was raging. Uh, and in 1970 and 71, there started being reports, particularly in 1971, coming back from Vietnam about GIs using heroin in exceptional numbers. Um, at the time, people thought maybe 10 to 15 percent of the U.S. combat forces in South Vietnam were using heroin. A subsequent White House survey found that 34 percent of U.S. combat forces or U.S. soldiers in country in South Vietnam in 1971 were regular heroin users, uh, most of them addicts, <clears throat> which meant that if that figure is accurate, there'd be almost as many, if not more, heroin addicts in the U.S. Army in South Vietnam than there were in the entire United States. And this was a, a, a massive heroin epidemic, something the U.S. military had never faced before. It was absolutely unprecedented. And, of course, the as people were writing about this, the one thing that, that nobody explained or even offered you know, any hint about was where was the heroin coming from? I mean, it was clear that the, the drugs were available in every barracks, every fire base, in every combat unit in South Vietnam. And so that became the question for me is to figure that out. So uh, an editor at Harper, Harper Collins, back then it was called Harper and Row came up from New York and proposed that I do a, a kind of quickie paperback on the historical background to the current heroin epidemic in South Vietnam. So I started working on a, uh, in the Yale Library, and which had excellent sources on the uh, European colonial opium monopolies in Southeast Asia. But those sources ended in 1950, just as the story really sort of got interesting. Uh, that would be during the French-Indochina War against the the communist Viet Minh. And so I very tentatively started doing some interviews and uh, I went to Paris and I interviewed former French military officers. They explained to me that their covert operations were badly funded. So when the French government abolished their legal colonial opium monopoly, they simply transferred it to the criminal underworld of Saigon and used their slice of the profits to fund their covert operations. They described how French military aircraft collected the opium from the hill tribes in the mountains, flew it down to Saigon, sold it in the opium dens uh, through the underworld, and, and bucketed the profits to run their covert operations. And uh, when I finished my interview with a man named General Maurice Bayeux, who was the former head of the French equivalent of the CIA for Indochina, I said, so what happened to your apparatus when your war was over in 1954 and the Americans arrived? And he said, well, basically, the Americans picked up our entire apparatus. And I assume they got the drugs with it. But that's something he said you'll have to investigate. So that's what I did. 
I went to Vietnam and I, I sort of plunged into this dark underside of the U.S. war effort in Indochina. Very quickly, uh, I went around Saigon. Uh, the heroin was available everywhere at every bar, every disco, every rock and roll club where GIs were gathered. Uh, it was sold in little tiny plastic vials. It was only $2 a vial. Uh, but that was, again, didn't answer the question where it came from. Uh, very quick, I did a series of interviews courtesy of a former director general of the Vietnamese National Police, who was then out of power, who was very helpful. He found me sources. I quickly worked out that the <clears throat> leading heroin syndicates were operating under the control of the president, vice president, and premier of South Vietnam. And then I decided to go north into Laos to follow the heroin to its source in Laos. And when there, I, I found uh, that the the largest heroin laboratory in the world, and um, on the banks of the Mekong River, not far from uh, China, which was producing about 100 kilos of powdery white heroin a month, uh, was was owned and operated by the commander-in-chief of the Royal Laotian Army, a top American ally who got about 99% of his army's aid from the United States government. I also found that the U.S. CIA secret army, made up of Hmong Hill tribesmen, uh, that their primary cash crop was opium, and that officers in that army were <clears throat> involved in the traffic as well. So the raw opium was coming out of the Golden Triangle from the Hmong and other minority groups, particularly in Burma, that were growing it, being processed through about seven labs, uh, clustered around the, the Burma-Thai-Lao border, and then flown by South Vietnamese military aircraft and by South Vietnamese naval vessels into South Vietnam and distributed to the GIs. Uh, and what I also learned was that, the, that, that well, at one point when I, I found out that General Owen was involved in the traffic, I decided to go to the source. So I went to General Owen's house and I knocked on his door. And he admitted me and I sat him down and I said, I'd like to ask you about the opium trade. <clears throat> and I... And I said there was some controversy concerning your management. You know, there were people that alleged you were grafting from it. And that was one of the reasons for tension in the ranks of the military that culminated in the coup a few years ago. And he got a little upset, and he went upstairs and came down with this massive ledger that said something like, Opium Rishi du Laos, or the Lao Opium uh, Organization. And he had all of his accounts. He said, look, he said, here, here's my management. We're purchasing opium here. You see, we're paid here. It was this massive leisure, you know, a couple of feet high, a couple of feet wide, one of these things that if they were staging the the Christmas story by Charles Dickens, it would be Bob Cratchit's ledger on that cold <laughs> Christmas Eve. And he, he walked me right through all the transactions, and I asked permission to take notes. He said, by all means, he wanted to clear this up for all time. Then I went to the U.S. Embassy, and I said uh, to the public affairs officer, I said, I have a source uh, who says that General Owen was, uh, until quite recently, running something called the Open Regime de Laos. He was you know, very much directly involved in the, the buying and selling of opium. And the embassy said, I'll check with the authorities, and came back and said, there's, there's no basis for that. Anybody say that is just completely erroneous. And yet my source was General Owen. So what I realized was the embassy was pretty much aware and that, in fact, a later report by the CIA Inspector General in response to my book established that that the CIA and the U.S. Embassy was aware that the top officials in Laos, principals in their secret army, were heavily involved in the opium traffic, and they chose to to, to turn a blind eye and, and, and when questioned, to cover up for them because their main mission was not stopping drugs, of course. It was fighting a secret war in the mountains of Laos. And then when I got back to the United States, and my book was in press, uh, the deputy director of CIA corporate operations, a very famous CIA operative named Cord Meyer Jr., uh, walked into the office of my publisher and spoke to the publisher emeritus, Mr. Cass Tanfield Sr., who uh, had recently stepped down as the, the head of Harper Row and the family, still owns substantial shares in the company. And they were old personal friends. And uh, Cord Meyer Jr., the CIA guy, asked my publisher if he wouldn't mind just suppressing my book because it was a threat to national security. Well, the book was turned over to the CIA. They conducted a 10-day review, and when they came back, Harper and Rose lawyers uh, looked at their review, and the book was published unaltered. But the CIA didn't stop there. Uh, in those days, the CIA had very deep ties to my 
uh, university, promising undergraduates, for example, were called in for private chats with professors or masters of the colleges and invited to go to a train station and wait for a, a gentleman who would come up and say something to them. And and if they you know, had a nice conversation, they'd wind up like former CIA director Porter Goss, who was plucked out of the ranks of Yale undergraduates and rose through the ranks and later became head of the CIA. Yale had this kind of deep ties. Well, sort of, you know, uh, Cord Meyer was a Yale alumnus. He had all kinds of ties to the agency. The head of CIA counterintelligence was a Yale alumnus. The, the embassy, sorry, the, the agency was was thick with CIA, CIA operatives. And so, you know, the same week that my book got a, f- a favorable review on the front page of the New York Times Book Review, a major accomplishment for any historian of any age, uh, Yale put me on academic probation. Uh, and my phone was tapped. My income tax was audited, even though I had a poverty-level income as a graduate student. Uh, officials from the then Department of Health, Education, and Welfare came up and went to Yale's files and investigated my grant. And then in Southeast Asia, uh, the the village where I'd done my research and the village headman helped me, uh, he was plucked from his village by a helicopter and subjected to an interview with a very short, angry American and threatened with the loss of his life if he didn't deny everything that he, you know, that, that, that had happened in the village, that he told me about their involvement in opium production and that the CIA's Air America was carrying the opium out of their village for them. Uh, and he lied and denied everything. And what I realized when this was over was although we were a, a free society, in this era of the Cold War, the CIA had penetrated uh, American society and indeed the globe. They could reach halfway around the world uh, on a remote mountaintop and pluck a village headman from his village and make him deny what had happened before his very eyes. And in American society, they could penetrate my publisher, my university, my telephone, my friends, my graduate fellowship, and no, every single part of my life they could penetrate. And so what I realized is that the United States had a very powerful clandestine apparatus that girded every aspect of American life and America's footprint around the globe. And that was you know, a pretty fast learning curve between the age of 26 and 27. Yeah, and since then, a lot of your work has in one way or another, focused on this kind of uh, clandestine netherworld, as you as you so aptly uh, term it, of of the American Empire, things like uh, torture and surveillance, um, as well as you know more research since then on the the narcotics trade and all that. And in this latest book, you talk about that starting with your investigations of the heroin trade out of Southeast Asia, that you kind of through doing that, developed a particular historical research methodology that since then you've um, used on other clandestine topics. So could you explain a bit about what you mean by that? Like what exactly is this methodology, kind of the nuts and bolts of how you approach researching topics like this? Sure. When I was doing the research for the politics of heroin in 1971, Needless to say, any American ally that was involved in the, the production and distribution of heroin to American combat forces, from most of them, with the exception of a few people like General Owen, who seemed to be oblivious to the political implications of what he was involved in, but particularly in South Vietnam, everybody knew the risk of being exposed for involvement in the heroin traffic. Indeed, one general was, and it, it contributed to his disgrace and the end of his career. Uh, so, so you couldn't just blunder around Saigon, you know, asking, you know, who's selling the heroin. I very quickly learned when I when I landed in Saigon, I'd never been there before. I didn't speak Vietnamese. I spoke French, which a lot of the elite did in those days. And so, you know, I I I, I was in a city of four million people, a snarling mass of traffic, you know, a, a war raging beyond the boundaries, and all of this not only, you know. Uh, uh, complex and difficult to figure out, but all of it covert, clandestine. So I'm a brand new kid in the city, and I'm supposed to figure out, you know, the, probably the deepest, darkest secret in that city. Uh, <clears throat> and so the question is, how do you do this without getting yourself killed? 
And what I realized is that I, I actually had, by virtue of sitting in all those history classes for all those years, develop an understanding or, or a method of how I might do this. And what I did was I simply started in the past, in the colonial era, when the basically the structure, the logistics of the Indochina opium trade was developed. Property production up in the highlands under certain tribes and leaders, transport down to Saigon, processing in those days into refined smoking opium, distribution to opium dens. And then after 1950, because of my research in Paris, I understand how that moved to the, the French military. In other words, I, I by, by following the unchanging structural dynamics of the traffic, I could identify what the logistics should be and who the players were controlling those logistics and then get an idea of who was involved and be able to target my questions so that I could seek obliquely confirmation of their participation. Or sometimes, amazingly enough, when I went to General Owen, first-person corroboration of his participation in the illicit traffic. But basically, it was tracking the trail of historical continuity from the past when the traffic was legal and obvious, and, and you, could, you could study it and understand it, then through the shadows up to the present when it got murky and illegal and dangerous, but following those unchanging lines and logistics, you could, you could get a, a very clear idea of who was involved in the traffic, and then by investigating around about, corroborate their involvement. That was essentially the method. So the idea is start in the past when the, the trail is still you know, warm, figure out the patterns and then track the trail of historical continuity from that clear past to the, through the murky present. And that's worked uh, not only with trafficking drugs, but also worked with the history of surveillance in the United States throughout the 20th century. <clears throat> and it worked um, uh, with, with other topics as well. Uh, for example, the topic of torture, tracking that from the 1950s through the present. In uh, When I was in graduate school, uh, my primary field of study was actually British Empire. So in reading uh, In the Shadows of the American Century, I very much appreciated the comparative imperial analysis that you brought in and the way that you brought in a lot of the framework that's used in studying empires. But it it is often not applied to the united states you know post world war 2 global imperium and so I, I i appreciated that you were trying to kind of sketch out a holistic picture of of sort of the pillars on which this thing is built and then also and this is i guess building on your previous work as well in in, in a big way connecting the dots about the way that um a lot of the more authoritarian aspects of American government at home have their ultimate origins abroad, right? The old saying of the empire always comes home. So I was hoping we could kind of go and give just a brief sketch. Obviously, everybody should go read your book, but um, just a brief sketch of like some of these pillars of the American empire. So um, we've already mentioned a bit the covert netherworld, right? The, the clandestine world of like covert operations and also organized crime. What else could you add to just sort of sketching that out aside from the involvement uh, in the narcotics trade? Like, what are we really looking at here? Sure. Uh, it's a multi-tiered apparatus. Uh, at the end of World War II, the United States was triumphant and stood astride the globe like a, an unchallenged titan. The United States began building an apparatus for the exercise of global hegemony. And first of all, it was a uh, a managed economic order starting at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, establishing the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and uh, the United States corporations, who, which have been active traders in the world before, became even more active. So the U.S., first of all, had a very large economic stake in the global system that it was constructing. And the, uh, the other thing is that the United States did something distinctive with its global powers. It built up an international community grounded in the rule of law, enshrining the principle of national sovereignty as more or less the entitlement of all of the peoples of the world, and presiding over a, a rapid process of decolonization 
the liquidation of seven European overseas empires, and the creation of a hundred new independent sovereign states, particularly in Asia and Africa. Uh, So that was the first part. Uh, The second part were uh, um, the military. The United States military built up to a massive level during World War II. There was a brief post-war disarmament because of Korea and the Cold War. We gradually created what President Eisenhower presided over this construction called the military-industrial complex. And one of the signal features of that, as President Eisenhower said in that famous sort of valedictory speech when he left office in 1961, was that he said, you know, Nobody would have ever recognized what we built uh, in, in the in the history of the United States in the, in the American past. He said, basically, we can't wait for a conflict to to mobilize as we've done in the past. So we built an integration between science, industry, and the military, uh, and he called it the military-industrial complex. But the really important part was the integration of science and technology, active, aggressive research for the next best thing into this ever-changing, ever-modernizing military apparatus. Uh, Then there was uh, uh, multilateral alliances, bilateral multilateral alliances, diplomacy. The United States pursued very active diplomacy. And when the Cold War started, we created a series of, of, of multilateral pacts starting from NATO in Western Europe, running down to Southeast Asia Treaty Organization in Southeast Asia, and then four bilateral pacts in 1951 uh, with Japan, Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the fourth and the really distinctive dimension, the thing that separated the U.S. exercise of global hegemony, you know, that made, if you will, the American empire different from any empire that had come before it was the covert dimension. And there's a simple reason for that, why it became so important, was that, as I said, the, one of the first components of the, of the U.S. hegemony, the U.S. world order, was this idea of um, uh, an international community of sovereign nations. Well, in such a world where you have the United Nations and even the smallest little Pacific Island nation and the mightiest continental power are equal in the eyes of the UN, one nation, one vote, if you will, then how can, how can, how can you intervene? How can you exercise hegemony in a world of nominally equal sovereign states? This is a contradiction between the, the, the ideal world the United States was building and the reality of the exercise of, of asymmetric power in a situation of global hegemony of empire. And so the way to resolve this contradiction was one never intervenes with gunboats or armies as one did in the past, which is a clear violation of a nation's sovereignty. You send in CI operatives, just a handful of people, sometimes one or two operatives, to try and manipulate the politics of the society. And at the start of the Cold War, the CIA tried to to cross the Iron Curtain. They mounted a, a series of operations to try and penetrate China, they were particularly active in trying to penetrate the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. And very quickly, within about four or five years, the CIA realized that all of these operations were a disaster. You know, when we smuggled in a team, whether it's the Stasi or the, 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 the KGB, they would allow them to operate for a while and follow them around and see how they, who they made contact with, and they'd pick up everybody torture them and kill them. And one team after another got wiped out. And it was very clear that these police states uh, were good at one thing above all else, policing. Uh, they were very good at that, and they could they could capture anybody they could send in. So the CIA dropped that mission. And under President Eisenhower, they became the means of intervening on our side of the Iron Curtain, essentially trying to uh, control who occupied the presidential palace or the prime minister's residence in these hundred new nations. And the CIA manipulated elections systematically. They fomented coups. They spread propaganda in order to control the, the, the person who entered the presidential palace to make sure that, that that person was friendly towards America. And they were very skilled at that. Some of those spectacular instances we know about, Iran, 
53, Guatemala 54, Chile in 73. Yes, we know about that. You know, sometimes those interventions can become quite spectacular, but most of the time they are very quiet, so quiet that we, most of us are still unaware of them. Most of them are still unknown. And so the, the covert mention was distinctive and central in the U.S. apparatus of global power. And there was one additional feature, okay? These are kind of the, the surfaces of, of politics, if you will, the visible surface. We're talking about trade packs and the flow of trade. We're talking about military bases and multilateral agreements. Uh, even covert operations are less visible, but nonetheless, they're, you know, if you will, they're, they're human agency. But the, the, the underpinning of U.S. global power was geopolitical. This dimension of politics that, that, although it seems kind of simple on the surface, most people have a very difficult time understanding. And what the United States was doing, uh, it was a, a very clever historian at Oxford named John Darwin, who wrote a book called After Tamerlane, surveying a thousand years of the contestation of empires across the vast swath of the Eurasian landmass. What, what, John Darwin of Oxford said was the United States became the most powerful empire in the history of the world because it was the first to control the axial ends of Eurasia. And what he meant by that, he never, he didn't elaborate. It's very opaque. But what the United States did, if you think about it, okay, let's go back to those multilateral pacts. We established the NATO alliance in Europe in 1949. And that gave us lots of bases in Europe, including massive Ramstein Air Base in Germany and all the rest. And that was one axial end. And then the other axial end of Asia was that Pacific littoral, those bilateral packs, mutual defense packs stretching from Japan, South Korea, Philippines, all the way down to Australia. And then what we did is between those two axial anchors that gave us a kind of the position for controlling Eurasia, we laid down circles of steel, one on top of the other. First of all, mutual defense treaties, NATO down to CETO, and then those bilateral pacts. Then we created, over time, three fleets, three massive U.S. Navy armadas, the sixth fleet in the Mediterranean, the seventh fleet at Subic Bay in the Philippines for, for, the, for the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean, and then later the fifth fleet at Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. And then we had hundreds of military bases ringing the Eurasian landmass. And the last piece in the puzzle was over the last 10 years, the U.S. has built 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily all the way around the Eurasian landmass to Anderson Air Force Base in Guam and all the way up to Japan. And so the, the, it, it's the... The, the U.S. dominance over the vast Eurasian landmass that has been the geopolitical underpinnings of U.S. global power for the past 70 years. And that position, of course, is under President Trump starting to crumble. Yeah, yeah. It uh, seems like a, a big part of it is is uh, simultaneously the rise of other powers, uh, chiefly China, as you as you document in the book, combined with, I, I guess, even back even before Trump, a, a seeming loss of skill on the part of a lot of the leaders, at least in recent history, who don't seem to really grasp geostrategy very much. And uh, you talk a bit about the, I think, uh, micro military misadventures like the invasion of Iraq. Um, that empires seem to be prone to, especially when they're kind of uh, peaking and then passing their prime. Could you go through a little bit more, like exactly what, because on paper, and you go through a lot of this, there's all this surveillance technology, there's drones, uh, the, the Pentagon is drastically trying to increase its control of space and cybersecurity and, you know, cyberspace and everything. What's causing this seemingly unstoppable Leviathan to also be arguably in a in a period of decline? Yeah, very good question, actually. Excellent question. Uh, it's a complex process. Let's start with the, the one of the critical underpinnings of U.S. global power: the the economy. 
Uh, back at the start of the dawn of, of the U.S. era in the late 40s, early 1950s, the United States had something like 50% of the, of, of the global economy under its control. We produced about half the wealth of the world. By 1960, that was down to 40%. These days, if you, uh, most statistics say it's about 20%. And then if you look at this thing called purchasing power equity, in other words, what can you buy for a Chinese renminbi and what can you buy for a U.S. dollar in China and in the U.S.? You know, what's the actual value of the, of, of the currencies? They say that actually the U.S. may be down to as low as 15% of, world, uh, of, of the world economy under its control. So we went from 50%, half the world economy, down to 15%. Uh, and that's in many ways a tribute to the, the global order the U.S. has presided over because prosperity has become shared. There's a lot of very dynamic uh, new nations developing around the globe. Okay, uh, so that's the that's the long-term trend. And as our as a global hegemon, as uh, as your share of the global economy withers, so does your relative power. There may be a lag. Your military may be built up. You may have a kind of comparative advantage, but inevitably that's going to erode. Second thing <clears throat> that's that's going on is that um, there there's a shift. The United States has finally found a rival that has the means and the motivation to challenge its power. Uh, and this this happened, if you will, back in the 1950s when Britain, the fading empire, turned over things to the United States. We basically took away the substance of British global power. Well, China, since it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, 2002, uh, you know, it began building up massive trade surpluses around the globe, particularly with the United States. And they had, by, uh, until about two years ago, they had, they, they had a surplus of $4 trillion from their world trade. Moreover, they started moving up the production chain from, you know, manufacturing you know, basically hardware and, and clothing and the like, now to very sophisticated technology. They developed with amazing speed, comparable, let's say, the rise of Germany as a technological power to challenge uh, Britain in the 19th century. They've come across very, very, very fast. And, and uh, 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 the change is, just, is, is quite amazing. Okay, uh, let's just look at some of the statistics that I have in my book, In the Shadows of the American Century, that attempt to capture this, this, this shift in global power. Back in 2008, the United States held the number two spot behind Japan in worldwide patent applications we had about 230,000, and China had just 195,000. China was number three. But they were closing very fast because they had a blistering 400% increase since about 2000 when they joined the World Trade Organization. In 2014, China actually took the lead in this critical category. They had half the world's patent applications. They filed an extraordinary 800,000 patents compared to only 285,000 for Americans. Another critical area where China's been very strategically concentrating its work is supercomputers. In 2010, China launched something called the Tianhei One, which the China's defense ministry launched this computer, and it was officially the world's fastest supercomputer. For the next seven years, China produced the world's fastest machine, and then in 2016, they won the race in the way that really matters with a supercomputer with microprocessor chips made inside China itself. Not buying American chips, Japanese chips, their own. Now China has more supercomputers than the United States. They have the most in the world with 167. We got 165. Japan is the third with 29. And at a time when supercomputers are critical for things like code breaking, for cracking the most sophisticated of cyber warfare attacks, for breaking the binaries, having an edge with supercomputing to both create codes and crack codes gives you a really important advantage. Uh, and the the other thing that's happened too is that you know the long decline of America's comparative advantage in secondary and tertiary education has finally begun to take a toll. In 2012, the OECD, the Organization of Economic, Economic Cooperation and Development, I like to call it the Rich Countries Club. <laughs> Uh, they do this testing. In 2012, they tested 500,000 15-year-olds around the world 
very solid tests. For example, the test in China would be administered by an Australian. The test in Australia would be administered by a non-Australian. And so it was. So there could be no gaming of these tests. In 2012, China, Chinese students, 15-year-olds, came first in math, first in science. America placed way down 20th in science, 27th in math. Well, you know, we got all upset about this, and you know, George Bush uh, uh, had his No Child Left Behind initiative. Uh, President Obama had his Race to the Top educational initiative. And we invested billions in supposedly improving American higher education. In 2015, three years later, America actually did much worse. We slid down to 25th in science, and this I can't believe. 39th in math. America tested 39th in math. I mean, that's amazing. Hmm. How can you be the world's preeminent technological power when your sample population of kids is 39th in math? Oh, you might say, okay, so so what? Who cares? Well, <laughs> we care because those, those, those 15-year-olds that now got braces, backpacks, and attitude, by 2030, which is when... I predict the U.S. will lose its global hegemony. Those 15-year-old test takers in 2015 will be 30-year-old, brilliant, mid-career scientists and engineers and technologists determining whose computers have the edge, whose satellites get hacked, and whose economy produces the next best thing. So that's, a, that's another very real factor is basically, if you will, the infrastructure for America's technological hegemony, America's technological primacy, which, remember I said, was embedded in that key factor, that military-industrial complex. We're losing it. And it's becoming manifest. For example, um, you know, one of the, another aspect of American power that nobody pays much attention to is that, you know, in 1966-67, the United States launched the world's global system of telecommunication satellites. The U.S. Defense Communication Satellite Agency. My, do- my dad was chief system engineer on that project. You know, uh, we, we were the first nation in the world to have that system. Today, that's absolutely critical. The three C's, command, control, communication, for the entire U.S. military, air, land, and sea, is done through those satellites. And by 2020, just three years from now, China is going to become the second nation in the history of the world to have a, a global system of telecommunication satellites. Moreover, it looks like China is already ahead of us. Our satellites communicate essentially by microwaves, by sort of radio waves, okay? They came up with this new technology that the, a photon of light communication from ground station to satellite shot through unique transmitter and receiver that is impervious to hacking. So when... There's a, a next war. The first thing that's going to go is, is going to be attack on each other's satellites. China shocked the Pentagon in 2007 when it launched a missile and shot down one of its satellites way up in the exosphere. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. replicated the feat. We shot down one of our satellites as well. And suddenly, you know, space was a battle zone. Space was weaponized. And this all comes down to computers codes and technologies and china is very quickly very strategically stealing a march on us and it's catching up very very fast you're one of the the top uh, experts on really some of the darker sides of the american state and the american empire and all that and you've even as you mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation you know personally uh, been on the receiving end of some of this stuff um, when you were, you know, harassed and targeted and surveilled and everything. And in this book, I get the impression that you're kind of conflicted or ambivalent about the possible decline and fall of America's empire. Um, am, am I reading that correctly when I interpret it in, the, in that way? Conflicted? Not conflicted, no. I think I'm, you know, I get attacked from the left on this. But, if, you know, you remember what I said earlier in our conversation, that one of the hallmarks of the American empire was that we constructed an international order. First of all, a, a world order uh, governed by the international rule of law, 
we integrated the international court within the UN apparatus. Second, we presided over the establishment of the United Nations, a real community of, of nations. Uh, and we, you know, within the UN, we made the respect for national sovereignty and the right of all the peoples of the world to enjoy national sovereignty one of the hallmarks of the world order. I also said, you know, that that there has been a massive growth in the global economy with alleviation of poverty under the World Health Organization, a part of that international apparatus the United States presided over. Epidemic disease has been controlled. Some diseases have been almost, well, yellow fever is, is pretty much gone. Uh, polio is close to extinction. A lot of epidemic diseases are, are well controlled now. People around the globe have better health than people have ever had. So the U.S., along with the the harsh side of the exercise of power, I mean, you know, empires are by their very nature asymmetric in their power, and the hegemon can be quite quite brutal and and, uh, do a lot of damage. And so we have Vietnam, for one, uh, the uh, invasion of Iraq, for another. Estimates on the civilian casualties range from... 100 to 600,000 killed. So empires do that. That's the way they exercise their power. Um, but, you know, the United States has also stood for economic progress, human rights, the rule of law, international community. And the powers that are standing by to succeed us, if not, uh, if you will, a superpower like us, but maybe a, a sort of a regional hegemon or one of, you know, a, of, of several powerful a kind of a coterie of global powers. Moscow and Beijing, they don't share any of our commitment to these principles. Um, for example, last year at the uh, International Court of Arbitration in The Hague, the, the justices ruled that China's uh, construction of those artificial islands, seven artificial islands in the, in the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, gave them no territorial rights. China just waved it away. So uh, I, I think that the succeeding powers, and both of these are, let's not forget, China is a communist dictatorship, and Russia is a kind of post-communist autocracy. These are not democratic states. So you know, I think it's possible that the succeeding international order could have all of the abuses and fewer of the benefits. Let me put it that way. And I think that's a realistic assessment. In other words, things are not the best now, but they can always get worse, and I expect they might get worse. Right, right, okay. Um, yeah, that. Well, let me put it this way. Let me sure. put it this way, okay? Uh, if you think back to World War II, okay? That was a clash of empires. The British Empire, Churchill, always spoke about the empire when he gave his resounding speeches, uh, you know, We'll fight them on the beaches and all the rest. And America was an emerging global hegemon. So we had sort of a global hegemon to be and an old-style colonial empire on one side. And we had the Nazi empire, which is the first empire to really control most of the Eurasian, sorry, most of, of Europe for the first time in human history. And then the Japanese empire had expanded. Uh, and by my calculation, it had more people under its control than any other empire, including the British Empire. Okay, and, and these were brutal empires, the Japanese and the Nazi. So which empire would you rather have had one, World War II? The Nazis in Japan or Britain and the United States? Because if the Nazis in Japan had won, we wouldn't have gotten the UN, the International Monetary Fund, the World Health Organization, human rights, women's rights, the rule of law. You know, that wouldn't have happened. Empires are a constant. Neil Ferguson of Harvard said, reaching back a couple thousand years, he counted 69 empires in world history. So we've had them for thousands of years. They're not going away. And and some are relatively benign and some are absolutely malign. When I I look at the decline and possible fall of the American empire, one of the things I, I do see as concerns is what you've just said, that, you know, what replaces it could potentially be a lot worse. Another thing that I worry about is that the U.S. empire might, in its waning years, 
recklessly lash out uh, both abroad and potentially in a way at home in an effort to forgive the phrase, make America great again, so to speak. And I mean, it just seems to me looking at history that empires in decline are often very prone to that sort of thing, to more authoritarianism at home and or more aggression abroad, in which kind of out of a feeling of insecurity, they, they might lash out recklessly. And in so doing, they might actually speed up their own collapse instead of salvaging the situation. But regardless, I mean, it can create a lot of problems. So, you know, I'm thinking about like uh, the Austrian Empire, you know, their belligerents helping start World War I. Um, the Ottoman Empire getting in World War One and kind of speeding up its own collapse, and and the, and also the consequences this can have for the domestic population. Um, it seems like the best case scenario would be for America's political class to kind of accept decline on some level and try to manage it gracefully, and to kind of try to work out some sort of mutual understanding based based on like kind of respecting each other's spheres of influence with rising powers, but. How how likely do you think that they are to actually do that, given how much things like American exceptionalism are just sort of an unquestionable dogma? Sure. I mean, underpinning your, your, question, your question is the issue of leadership. And in the ascent of empires and the management of their decline, leadership matters. Because when, when the system is sort of ticking along just fine, any moderately skilled politician can can maintain the system. But it's building it, which in our case was done by President Eisenhower, who was, from the point of view of constructing an imperial edifice, was a brilliant leader at it, did a very good job, turned the National Security Council into a kind of a, the equivalent of his old Shafe headquarters for the, the war in Europe, into the management of the American global system, and used the CIA as kind of his covert army to to uh, resolve the issues that the National Security Council brought before him. Uh, and then after that, we had lesser leaders that managed just fine. Now that the empire is in decline, leadership really matters. And let's just look at the last two administrations. Uh, under President Obama, uh, whom I regard as really almost brilliant in his understanding of geopolitics, he saw what China's strategy was. He realized that China was unleashing a massive infrastructure project beginning about 2007, spending a trillion dollars and laying down a, a grid, a, a, an infrastructure of roads, rails, gas and oil pipelines that are stretching from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the East and South China Sea, all the way across the 6,000 miles of the vast Eurasian landmass. And he also saw that in the South China Sea, by building those islands, which China started doing uh, in 2014, and they were already you know, moving that direction, they were building themselves beginning about 2007. They started transforming a sleepy fishing village on the uh, Pakistani coast of the Arabian Sea at Gwadar into what is, uh, they spent $200 billion building a modern port, soon to be naval base. So Obama could see China's strategy, lay down the infrastructure across the Eurasian landmass and slice through those circles of steel that the United States had erected around the rim of Eurasia uh, during the Cold War and maintained ever since. And Obama came up with a, a really very sophisticated geopolitical strategy for checking China's rise. First of all, Obama determined that with the boom of energy production in North America. We strategically were no longer dependent on Middle Eastern oil. So, you know, basically, you know, manage it to stop, you know, uh, disasters, but pull all your surplus forces out and reposition them along the Pacific littoral to rebuild the American position there that had waned in the aftermath of the Cold War. And did that quite systematically. Under Obama, the Pentagon was committed, this is no longer the case, but they were committed to having 60% of U.S. air and naval forces arrayed in the Western Pacific against China along a string of revitalized military bases, keeping the bases in Japan, building a new joint base in uh, South Korea, Jeju, uh, gaining access to five bases inside the Philippines, and building a new U.S. installation at Darwin in northern Australia. 
The other, the real Obama masterstroke, however, was multilateral trade. Obama negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and, 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 he, and that got very far. And was right on the brink of ratification when he left office. Uh, and then uh, in Europe, he started negotiating something called the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP. Those two trade pacts, if enacted, would have directed 60%, 60% of all world trade, draining it out of the vast Eurasian landmass across the Atlantic, across the Pacific, away from China and toward America. And here's where leadership matters. President Trump, when he was inaugurated, began, whether from some malign design, I do not know, but he sort of intuitively understands where the pillars of power are. And he's doing just about his level best to topple them. Okay, in his first international visit in May of this year, he went to Europe and he appeared before NATO, and not only did he chide our NATO allies for failing to pay their fair share, as he called it, but he refused to affirm the principle of common defense. Without common defense, NATO isn't NATO anymore. And later on, of course, he apologized and said, well, I really meant to affirm it, and we do affirm it, but the signal was clear. NATO is much weaker than it was before Trump made it very clear that he doesn't fully support NATO. And then during this recent trip, not only First of all, in his first week in office as kind of his housewarming president to the world, uh, President Trump canceled the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Stop that one. Despite the pleas of Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, you know, over the phone and in person not to kill that pact because Prime Minister Abe said, look, China has something called the Regional Cooperation Pact with 16 nations that they're negotiating. So if we don't control the trade... China will. You know, you can't cancel the pact. Well, Trump canceled it. And then in his trip to Asia, you know, when he just came back on Tuesday, and he was there for 12 days, the signal moment uh, was when he was at Da Nang in Vietnam, and Trump stood up and gave a full-throated denunciation of multilateral trade pacts. He also denounced those that purloin U.S. technology. Simultaneously, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership originally had 12 members, including the United States. Well, now there are 11. The 11 TPP partners announced major progress towards negotiating the trade pact amongst themselves without the United States. And so, in effect, the United States is abdicating its leadership. It's toppling, if you will, those two axial points of control that we've used as the, the basis for our dominance over the Eurasian landmass, leaving China free to lay down its infrastructure that will eventually knit Africa, Asia, and Europe into a unified world island with a, an infrastructure that directs trade and power, as if by natural law, away from Washington and towards Beijing. And Trump is oblivious to what he's doing. Yeah, well, I, I get the impression he's probably oblivious to a lot of things. But anyway, Dr. McCoy, um, I want to say thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the Dangerous History Podcast. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. CJ, this was a pleasure. I really appreciate your questions and all the thought you put into them. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. 
One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.